going to talk this week about a kind of a sensitive issue. We're going to talk about family. And if you remember over the last couple of weeks, those of you that have been with us, we've been talking about respectable idols, idols that we kind of allow into our lives that we say, well, it's okay. And we talked about things in our lives that can get in the way of our relationship with God. A couple of weeks ago, we started talking about our love relationships and how that uh, relationships either with our spouse or with boyfriend or girlfriend, that if we're not careful, they become the idols in our lives and they become the things that we focus our life around instead of focusing our life on God. Last week, we talked about money and the thing that the only thing that might be more controversial to talk to you about than money is family. All right. Now, I just want to remind you before we get into family about what our definition of an idol is. And it comes from a guy named Tim Keller, and it just simply is this. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And what we're going to talk about this week is the issue of putting your family in front of your relationship with God. Now, I know talking about this in the South is especially dangerous. People in the South have a tie to their families often that goes further back than most people. I mean, uh, you know, around here even in Goodlettsville, a lot of people know who your daddy, who your daddy's daddy, who your daddy's daddy's daddy daddy was. One of the things I love about this church is that it has a very family atmosphere. When I came here, I was told that there are extensions of families throughout this church. It has taken me a while, but I'm starting to get the family picture, all right? And there are families that are intertwined throughout the church, but I'll be real honest with you. There are still days that somebody walks up to me and says, you know, so-and-so's cousin's brother's husband's wife. That makes sense, I know, but go with it, all right? And I'll say, no, I had no idea they were related, all right? It's a very family atmosphere, and that can be good. We'll talk in a few minutes how that might not be good. But when you begin to talk about people's family, you can see them stiffen. Whenever you talk about anybody's family, you can kind of see them get upset. I used to think of it this way. When I was growing up, I had all kinds of friends that we rooted for different teams. Okay? I root for Tennessee. Like my nice orange tie, kind of orange tie here. That's because we won yesterday, a little game that they played yesterday afternoon against Kentucky. So if you're in here like Kentucky, that's okay. Uh, God will forgive you when you get to heaven for that. Um, my Kentucky friends were awfully quiet on Facebook and Twitter yesterday afternoon. I noticed that. Um, but we would root for different teams, but then something like the Olympics would come along. And this afternoon, the United States is playing Canada, and the United States is playing Canada, and I would imagine most of us in this room will be cheering for the United States as they play Canada. And it's this kind of idea that, that as you, there are different groupings, but we are all connected in some way. Well, the family was the most basic of the unit, and there could be friends that were Tennessee fans, but if they went after my family, they were in the doghouse. And what we're going to talk about today is not that family is bad. In fact, What I would tell you is most idols that we would put into our lives are not bad. They're just things that we've taken that are good or important and made ultimate. The first thing that I want us to understand this morning out of a passage of Scripture we're going to look at in Genesis 22. Have I told you to turn there yet? Turn there. Turn to Genesis 22. 
The first thing I want us to understand this morning is that family is important. Family is important. Now we're going to jump into the story here at the end of Genesis chapter or the beginning of Genesis chapter 22, towards the end of the story of a guy named Abram who became Abraham. And what we understand from his story is that God makes it very clear that family is important in building his nation. In fact, those of us that have been reading through the Bible, remember back a few weeks ago we read through Genesis, God comes to Abram and says, basically, I'm going to make you a blessing unto all nations, but I'm going to build out of you the greatest nation from your family. He changes his name from Abram to Abraham because he's going to become the father of many. And he says, you're not going to be able to count your descendants. They'll be like the stars in the sky or the sands on the earth. You won't be able to count them. They'll be all over the place. And he basically says, the greatest nation is going to come out of a family. And so from the very beginning, God makes Abraham understand that his family is important. If you remember the story, Abraham goes for years and years without children. Many years. And he gets upset with the fact that God has promised him these many children and he has no children. And so he takes matters into his own hands and goes outside of God's covenant with a maidservant. And he has a child. But God rejects and says, that's not what I'm talking about. You and Sarah are going to have a child. And he comes to them when Abraham and Sarah are older than anybody in this room and says, you're going to have a child. Now, I don't know how everybody is in this room, but I don't think any of you are as old as Abraham and Sarah. And he says to them, you're going to have a child. And what does Sarah do? She laughs. (laughs) God, that ain't happening. (laughs) I'm I'm old. I'm done with that. We tried that. It's not going to work. Let me just tell you, there have been nights over the last few weeks as we've been gently rocking dear sweet Madeline to sleep. When I have spent 45 minutes to an hour going up and down like this just to get her to relax, when I realize at the age of 34, I'm not as young as I once was. My lower back begins to hurt. My shoulder begins to cramp. You know, I wake up the next morning. I'm aching all over. And I think to myself, what would I do if I was 99 years old, right? Be some creaking and cracking going on. They have the child, Isaac. And from all practical purposes, what we find out from this passage of Scripture and from others is that Isaac became Abraham's life. He became Abraham's life. Chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. We're told from the very beginning it's a test. He said to him, Abraham, and the proper response is, here I am, God, what do you need? And God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. I want to say from the very beginning that God never says that it is wrong to love your family. He never tells Abraham it's wrong to love Isaac. In fact, throughout Scripture, he makes it pretty clear that one of our highest priorities in life is to take care of our family. To take care of the people that we are a part of. There are times in our lives where we realize the importance of family more than others. Most of you in this room know that I, my grandfather passed away. I was privileged enough to do the funeral on Wednesday uh, back in Dyersburg. And as I stood up on the platform to 
begin the funeral, I looked, and at this small church, Southside Baptist Church, on the outskirts of Dyersburg, there were about nine rows of family. Now, the rows weren't as long as they are here, but nine rows is a lot. And when I looked out there, I couldn't help but think about how important our families are. Gramps is my last grandparent, so Susan and I don't have any grandparents anymore. They've all passed away. Gramps was my parents, obviously, last parent. And so it's a generation that has passed away. What's interesting is, though, in my grandfather's family, he's the first brother or sister to pass away. So it's the first of a generation. And when I looked out there, I began to remember images from my childhood when we would all get together. I grew up, you know, in West Tennessee in Dyersburg, which is a metropolis compared to where my grandfather grew up in Gibson Wells and Brazil, Tennessee. How many of you actually knew there was a Brazil, Tennessee? All right? That's because it's not on Google Maps anywhere, I don't think. I don't think you can find it. You might go look at it this afternoon. It's out in the middle of nowhere. They grew up on a road that had no name. Literally. When 911 came along, they had to name the road. My great-grandfather's name was Bill Edwards, so that road is Bill Edwards Lane because nobody lived there but Bill Edwards. They had a two-and-a-half bedroom. You say, how there's a half bedroom? I don't know, but it's a half bedroom. Two-and-a-half bedroom, one bath, one living room, one kitchen house, and we would fit somewhere around 950 people in that house at Christmas. Now, not that many, really, but 80, 90 people. And the thing is, when I stood up to do the funeral, they were all there. People that I hadn't seen in years. Because, you know, as you grow older and you get married and you have children, we, Susan and I don't get to go back to Mama Bush's house anymore. Mama Bush and Daddy Bill aren't here anymore. And I stood there realizing to my grandfather and to myself how important family is. Now, let me just say from the very beginning, don't take anything I'm about to say in the second part of the message to mean that family is not important. Because it is. In fact, over in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 5, 8, Paul, writing to Timothy about instructions, says this, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are strong words. You don't take care of your family, then you are worse than an unbeliever. I don't know what being worse than an unbeliever is, but whatever it is, that's what you are when you don't take care of your family. So it is our responsibility to take care of our family. Now let me just say this. There are some of you in this room that have difficulties in your family. I don't know about them specifically necessarily, but in this room, this size, there are going to be problems in your family. Let me just say that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have no excuse for not making every effort to reconcile when there are problems in your family. Now, I'm not saying that there are some of you that have tried. I'm just saying that Scripture makes it very clear that we have a priority to our family. But here's the second thing I want you to understand. Family is important, but family is not most important. Chapter 22. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, Take him out to eat, have a good birthday party, enjoy your time together. Is that what it says? No. Go to the region of Moriah. 
sacrifice them there. I know in Scripture sometimes we like to spiritualize things, say, well, that's a spiritual command. He's talking metaphorically there. He's saying to literally lay his son on the altar of pride and say, here, you can have my son if you want him. Is that what it means? No. Literally sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. I've mentioned this when I've preached on this passage before, that this passage of Scripture was a whole lot easier to preach before I had children. Because I could just say, well, of course this is what God's saying. He's saying your family can't be that important to you. It can't be more important to me than you, to you than me. I can just go on and on about it. It's not, it's not about your family. It's about God, what God calls from you, not what your family's about. And it gets easy to talk about that when you don't look into the face of your two boys and little girl and your spouse. And the older I get and the more I love my children every day and the more I love my spouse every day, when I read a passage where God says, now take your son and go sacrifice him, the more difficult this passage becomes for me. I believe, and this is just a little aside here, that there are passages in Scripture that get harder to come to terms with the more mature you get. That doesn't mean they're less true or we have to come to terms with them, but they get harder. And for me, oftentimes, this is when I was like, listen, Isaac wasn't doing anything. Isaac's not doing anything wrong. And God says, go take Isaac. And we learn from the first verse that what's happening here is God is testing Abraham. And the basic test is this. Abraham, I told you I was going to bless you. I told you I was going to give you a son. And you can imagine that if you had a son of your own that you've been waiting for close to 100 years to have, that when that son got there, you might pour a little bit of your life into him. I have people come up to me sometimes and they tell me about Madeline. That little girl is going to be spoiled. And my response is, absolutely. Those two big brothers, she's the first girl, she's going to be spoiled. She is. But can you imagine if you had waited 99 to 100 years for this child? And what we get from this picture is that literally Isaac had become everything to Abraham. Everything. And God says, give it up. I couldn't help as the video was playing earlier to think that there are some people in the world today who that is reality that they've lost their home and their vehicle and their family and their livelihood. And there are some people that in the middle of the night, yesterday morning early in Chile, lost it all. There are people still reeling in Haiti who lost it all. And my guess is that just as there was Job sitting there in the midst of everything saying, even if God kills me, yet I will praise him, that there are Job's in Haiti and in Chile. And the question I have for my life is, would I do that today? Verse 3. I don't know if Abraham was an early riser, but on this morning he was. It says, early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two servants. He cut enough wood. He set out for the place. I just love the fact that early. In the Scripture, whenever you see early the next morning, that means instant obedience. That means at first opportunity. That means as soon as he could. You'll see over in the New Testament, all it talks about Jesus getting up early in the morning, early the next day. It just shows obedience. I don't think that that means that there's anything more spiritual about being up early in the morning. It just shows that he couldn't wait 
to get up and be obedient. On the third day, Abraham looked up, saw the place. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, carried himself in the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went together, Isaac had a question, as all of us would. Dad? Yeah, Isaac? Um, just a quick little note here. I see the fire. Um, I see the wood. But we don't seem to have anything to sacrifice. And Abraham says what became a name or is a name for God, the Lord will provide. God himself will provide the lamb. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. In the New Testament, there's a story of Jesus teaching near his hometown. And as he's teaching near his hometown, um, some people come up to him and they say, Hey, Jesus, guess what? You're not going to believe this. You've got family outside. Your, your mom's out there, your brothers, your sisters, they're, they're here. They want to meet you. Come on, come on. You, you can leave these people for a minute. Come on. They want, to, they want to talk to you for a minute. Now, the truth is we learn from Scripture and context that they were out there to try to talk Jesus into quitting what he was doing. Jesus, you're not. This is crazy talk here. You're not. Messiah, it's crazy. We know who you are. You're, you're the carpenter. You're, you're the one that we grew up with. You're, you know, you're, you're Jesus. You're, you're not this Messiah that you're talking about. And Jesus, it says in the scripture, in three different gospels, looked around, kind of waved his hands and said, "My family, my brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters are you." Those of you that do the will of the Father. Now, was Jesus trying to say he had disowned his family? No. What he was saying is that God's will is more important than his blood family. There's another place in Scripture over in Luke 14 when he's talking about what it requires to follow Jesus. And he says that unless you dislike, is that what he says? Unless you kind of push away to the side, is that what he says? He says, unless you hate your mother and father brother and sister you cannot follow me what's the point of all that the point of all that is this anything in your life that becomes before your relationship with god is wrong anything well how does that show up it shows up in different ways the video kind of made a light of it but it is that kind of thing of you know, even in church, um, making decisions based on your family instead of what God's called you to do. It shows up sometimes with parents whose children come to them and say, Hey, listen, I, I believe the Lord's calling me to missions. Well, are you sure about that? You, you need to go back and pray about that, make sure about that. It shows up in families who may feel called even after they've grown and they've got children that God is calling them to a new venture, maybe a new job or a new career or a new uh, ministry or to leave what they're doing and to go to missions or to go in on staff somewhere or to leave where they are and move to a different place and they say, but I don't know how that will affect my family. It shows up when decisions are driven more by your family than they're driven by your relationship with God. 
And it tells us very plainly here that what happened is Isaac had become more important to Abraham than his relationship with God. And God wanted through refining fire to weed that out and say, remember, it's about me, not about that. Now, we're going to talk in a you know, in the next few weeks about some other ways this kind of works itself out. Sometimes it works itself out in wanting your family to succeed, wanting your children or your spouse or others around you to succeed so that you can live through that success. I'm not really even talking about that today. What I'm talking about is just whatever it is in your life that you care about so much that interferes with your relationship with God. I was watching a video on YouTube this week, and uh, there's a pastor in Anderson, South Carolina, named Perry Noble that's got a, a mega church, And he, uh, he had put up this thing on a blog, and I looked at it a few months ago. And our youth may have even watched it one night. But it, it's about a, uh, one week they were going through the offering. And Perry starts out by saying every month in Anderson, South Carolina, somebody puts a lottery ticket in the offering. He says it's never a winner. So somebody came and said, well, God gives me the numbers. He said, well, then you'd win if God gives you the numbers. Don't put the lottery ticket in. But he said, they're going through it, and he found the lottery ticket for the month, and he threw that off to the side. And then going through it, he found wrapped in a sheet of paper a blue iPod. He said, well, why would somebody put an iPod in the offering plate? So he picked it up, and there was a note wrapped around it. If you want to go back and watch the whole video, you can go to, uh, I think on YouTube, search for iPod in the offering. And he says that the note, he begins to read the note. And what it says is this. He said, I realized that before I became a Christian, this iPod is what would calm me down. It is what would give me strength. It is what would make me happy. It was my encouragement. He said, and now that I've become a believer in Jesus, that's what God is supposed to do for me. He said, I began to think about the fact that my most prized possession in life was this iPod. And he said, I felt God telling me, give it up. He said, so when the offering plate came by, I decided to go ahead and to put it in. Let me ask you a question. If this morning we were to pass the offering plate again, we were to pass it on each row and take it down each aisle, and I was to ask you either physically or symbolically or metaphorically to put in that offering plate the most prized thing you have, what would it be that you would cast aside? For some of you in this room, it might be an iPod. It might be a relationship. For some of you, it might be your family, your children. Now listen, just because you put it there doesn't mean God's going to take it away. Verse 10. He reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord. Now, some people think that's just a regular angel. Sometimes in the Old Testament, when the designation angel of the Lord is there, it can mean a pre-incarnate Jesus. The angel of the Lord called out and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Here's the thing. When you give up whatever it is in your life that might be the most prized thing, it doesn't mean that God will necessarily take it away. But the truth is, he might. 
You see, sometimes people read this story and they think about how horrible it is. And listen, as I read it, it is a terrible thought to think about my children being asked of me. But then I think about the fact that God himself would send his own son. And when that moment came to sacrifice, instead of staying the hand of the executioner, he allowed his own son to die because of us. And I think to myself, if my heavenly father can be willing to give up his own son, why am I worried about what I might have to give? 